2: They used to be the stuff of sci-fi and futuristic Hollywood films. But now, killer robots are coming to a battlefield near you.
1: Machines are dictating the conduct on the battlefield. Machines are making the ultimate decisions about life and death.
2: A technological arms race has begun, and it's accelerating fast not just for killer robots, but for whole systems fuelled by cloud technology and AI to face down traditional armies. It's a race that could change the future of the world. And right now, we're not winning.
3: The first country to do that will steal an edge on the rest of the world militarily. And right now, that won't be Europe, and it's probably not the US.
2: Who's it going to be?
3: It's probably China.
2: With no real regulation in place, these systems are already making their way onto the battlefield. Is it too late to stop the march of the killer robots?
3: This technology exists now and it is essentially unstoppable.
2: You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, how killer robots are changing warfare. Last year, an audacious attack in Iran made global headlines. But whilst Middle East watchers tried to assess the political fallout, for military experts everywhere, it heralded a new era in robot warfare.
4: Mosin Fakhrizadeh, the father of Iran's nuclear programme. He was a target of the Israelis who have carried out a series of uh, assassinations of people involved in the Iranian nuclear effort.
2: That's the Sunday Times Foreign Features editor, Matthew Campbell.
4: He was driving back to the city from his country house with his wife and a convoy of minders, security guards, and at one point was approaching a truck parked beside the side of the road. In the back of this truck, unknown to Fakhrizadeh and his entourage, there was a very heavy calibre machine gun but there were no humans present. This was a weapon that had been smuggled in tiny parts into the country over a period of several months, and then reassembled and mounted in the back of this pickup truck. It was switched on by someone in a different country, a thousand miles away, that authorised the weapon to open fire as soon as it recognised the approaching target.
5: With a remote-controlled machine gun mounted on a car. A satellite-controlled machine gun. It was some kind of AI-controlled weapon that zoomed in onto his face.
4: Now, this was through a system of image recognition. Information about the target had been fed into this weapons programming, and it could have recognized the vehicle that he was traveling in. Some experts even believe that it could have been an example of facial recognition technology. In other words, it waited until it could positively identify, and then it opened fire.
6: One of Iran's top nuclear scientists is dead, apparently assassinated.
4: He was then flown to a hospital, uh, we believe in Tehran, but he died of his injuries there. He was killed. His wife, who was sitting in the passenger seat, was unharmed. At the time it happened in security circles and among military officials, there was great interest in this incident. This was a high-tech plot involving an AI-powered facial recognition satellite-controlled robot machine gun into whose bullets Fakhrizadeh stepped. It was regarded as an example of a country testing out uh, technology that's never really been used before.
2: Mosin Fahrazade was assassinated last November but it wasn't the first time Matthew had been intrigued by killer robots.
4: I first became interested in this subject back in 2017. I happened to see a YouTube video called Slaughterbots and it was really quite striking and left a deep impression on me. It showed swarms of miniature drones fitted with face recognition systems and explosives and they were being unleashed from the back of an aircraft and also a van. They were programmed to seek out and kill selected individuals. Some of these mini drones break into a school and start attacking these teenagers by basically charging at their heads and exploding. It's quite horrific.
2: I mean, that, that sounds horrendous. That sort of sounds like the worst kind of sci-fi imaginable. Was, was there a hint that this isn't just sci-fi, though?
4: Well, yes, indeed. A group of experts in artificial intelligence were warning that this scenario is essentially on the cusp of reality. The main professor behind it, Stuart Russell, he's a British artificial intelligence expert at Berkeley University, California. He now says that this type of weapon is already available and that we've seen examples of similar types of weapons being used on the battlefield.
5: The Turkish arms manufacturer who's selling them, quadcopters that can autonomously find, track and kill human beings, they are for sale and Turkey is promising to use them.
2: And if these weapons already exist, are, are we seeing them? Are we seeing killer robots on the battlefield?
4: One only has to look as far afield as Libya, where last year Turkish drones were deployed to great effect. A civil war is unfolding there, essentially pitting the official government based in Tripoli against uh, a warlord called General Haftar, who's backed by Russia. And he was trying to take Tripoli, but he was beaten back.
5: Are Khalifa Haftar's days numbered? the Libyan warlord loses his last stronghold in the West.
4: It was effectively the use of these Turkish drones that did it, because they are operating on a much higher level than any other weaponry we've seen so far.
3: Now, uh, by losing the city of Tarhuna, Haftar's forces have lost
1: their major and last stronghold in Western Libya.
4: When they're launched with a few taps of the keyboard, They can basically loiter around the battlefield for up to two hours or more. They've been programmed to identify tanks, armoured vehicles, and possibly even people wearing camouflage. They are pre-programmed to fire on those targets without reference to any human controller.
2: So these weapons are firing at targets without any human intervention. Is that as terrifying as it sounds? The AI expert, Professor Stuart Russell at Berkeley in California, certainly thinks so.
5: Because it doesn't require any human supervision, one person can launch an attack with millions of weapons. They can be selective, so you can wipe out you know, just the males between 12 and 70, or people of a particular ethnic group. It's hard to see any dimension on which they're not more dangerous than nuclear weapons.
2: With AI that's potentially more dangerous than nuclear weapons, it's not just the war in Libya that's been transformed by new technology.
3: My name is General Sir Richard Barons. I'm a former commander of UK Joint Forces Command.
2: General Barons is an expert on the emerging technology and he says it's already changing the way we plan for war.
3: First of all, the world is essentially transparent. So armies, navies and air forces that like to think that they can get ready at home, move around the world at some uh, leisure, organise themselves and then launch themselves into the battle at the time and place of their choosing. Well, none of that is now possible because the moment you begin a military activity, it is obvious from space. You have to rethink how uh, military forces move, uh, manoeuvre and fight because the other uh, end of this problem of transparency is the emerging primacy of the precision missile. We have seen the effects of this already. So for example, in in Ukraine a few years ago, two battalions of Ukrainian infantry in light-armoured vehicles, so let's say about a thousand people possibly, and probably a couple of hundred of vehicles. They were spotted by Russian drones, so unmanned surveillance, and they were destroyed by long-range precision artillery in somewhere between five and 20 minutes.
2: Wow, so before a battle could even begin.
3: That was the battle. The effect was catastrophic. So to put that in perspective, were it to come to it, and there's no reason that it should, a Russian cruise missile takes about 90 minutes to get from Russia to London. At the front end of it will be 300 kilograms of high-end, high-explosive. And that missile is sufficiently accurate to decide whether it goes to the door of number 10 or number 11 Downing Street. And of course, those missiles won't come as a one- Thing they'll come probably in in a clip of a hundred, and therefore we need to recognise that in the way war is fought in this century, it will be dominated by these long-range precision ballistic and cruise missiles, and and they are beginning to come at hypersonic speed, so five times the speed of sound, so very hard to intercept and and very hard to shoot down.
2: And Richard, just in the course of your career, you know, from the moment you began to the current climate, how much has technology on the battlefield changed?
3: So I served for around 40 years and I I started in the Cold War where technology was essentially the legacy of the Second World War and by the 1980s we had the equipment that we would have wanted to have in the 1940s. We have seen the early stages of yet another transformation as a result of the application of digital age technology and it is that process which is now going to accelerate And will become the most profound change in the way war is fought for at least 100 years.
2: And with this digital age technology, with AI and what are being described as killer robots, what exactly will that mean? What will it look like?
3: When we say killer robot, we might mean ship, submarine, aircraft, helicopter, vehicle, or the thing that looks like what most people think of a robot, which looks like a person, essentially, in robotic form. All of those things will exist when the, those machines are given something simple to do they're likely to be more effective simply watch this piece of sky or sea or or land without blinking 24 hours a day seven days a week so that's quite straightforward that's just surveillance and doesn't involve any lethal force then you could complicate that by saying watch this piece of sky or sea or land and if you see this sort of target immediately engage it. You don't need to ask for permission, just engage it. And that's where you're building some sort of facility into the machine to recognise a legitimate target and having assured itself in its own way it's a legitimate target, then to engage it. Where we get into very tricky territory is where lethal autonomous weapon systems are built that are at the leading edge of the technology and may therefore make a catastrophic mistake.
2: There are clearly huge risks... But the technology is leaping ahead. So what will a battlefield of the future look like? When this podcast spoke to the Chief of the Defence Staff, General Sir Nick Carter, a few months ago, we asked him.
5: You will have fewer human beings on that battlefield, that it's much more likely to be about unmanned technologies and autonomous technologies, and indeed robots, combination of drones and robotic platforms, and they will probably be able to print a lot of the ammunition, munitions and logistic capabilities that they need. What's with 3D printers in the middle, of a, I think in middle that's of a battle? The way that they will achieve a lot of their effects in the future. They will clearly have connections to cyber operators who will be able to provide them with some of the wherewithal they need. They will, I think, have extraordinary situation awareness in terms of what they wear and their helmets and what's available to them in terms of information systems. You already see head-up displays, particularly if you see the helmet of an F-35 pilot, like you're probably familiar with a number of the films that people tend to watch these days. And it will give you a whole load of information which is vividly there in the glass in front of your
2: eyes. According to General Sir Richard Barons, although there will still be soldiers on the battlefield of the future, it'll be the robots and machines that lead the charge.
3: Unlike, say, the First World War, where... Soft-bodied humans were thrown into the fight first. Increasingly, in the future, the soft-bodied human will be the follow-up echelon to things that machines have done. Instead of seeing ships, tanks and aircraft, so people manning equipment, you would see a proliferation of more autonomous systems. So these will be sensors that spot things and weapon systems that, that aren't attached to people and in many cases are operating in an autonomous way within bounds. And over time, there'll be more of those And they'll be leading the fight. And it's this evolution of autonomous capability that is such a fundamental change to the future of armed forces. There's an element of that which is defensive. So most warships these days have Gatling guns, so very high rate of fire guns on them that are designed to shoot down incoming missiles. And the only way they can function is essentially you turn them on, point them in the right direction, and then... At the speed of artificial intelligence, they will shoot down incoming missiles. And that's held to be a good thing, because that's the only way you can defend something like a warship from an incoming uh, missile. Then a notch up uh, would be the sort of gun that South Korea deployed in the demilitarized zone with North Korea, which is um, an autonomous gun, which within the parameters of its programming, works on the basis that anything it sees that moves is an enemy and it just shoots at it. So it's not very discriminatory, but it is bounded by geography. And then the notch on from that will be uh, weapon systems that unless carefully designed, built and controlled, will apply lethal force without any human intervention. And that's the area where there are legal and ethical challenges.
2: They are thinking for themselves, effectively.
3: Well, they don't really think, of course, (laughs) because they are just driven by AI. But within the bounds of their algorithms... They are built to identify a target. Now, that could be a human or a machine or a building. And it's programmed that when it identifies something within its library, it sees as a target, it shoots at it.
2: It's killing without somebody pressing the button.
3: Yes. So people get very unsettled by this. But we need to be clear about a few things. One is this technology exists now and it is essentially unstoppable. So denying the technology is going to exist is not going to help different countries around the world have different laws and values uh, the western predisposition not to develop these systems is not shared by other countries around the world so we at least have to recognize in the west going to have to deal with these these things
2: we can't afford not to
3: so we can't afford not to because we will have awarded a decisive competitive edge to potential uh, opponents
2: coming up What are the benefits of killer robots and the very real pitfalls? But first...
6: I'm Megan Agnew.
2: I'm a commissioning editor and writer at the Sunday Times magazine. I organise and write interviews with politicians, stroppy heartthrob actors who absolutely don't want to be there, authors, artists... And features on a whole range of issues. We can only do this thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times. Subscribe today by visiting thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times.
6: If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm lip fillers.
1: Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN.
2: If the vision of killer robots waging war in our cities has alarmed you... Rest assured, you're not alone. Here's Matthew Campbell, the Foreign Features Editor for the Sunday Times again.
4: The technology certainly makes people feel a bit queasy. The idea of disobedient robots defying their human masters has for a long time been a staple of Hollywood. I remember a space odyssey 2001. The computer controlling the spacecraft refuses to let the astronaut back inside after his spacewalk.
7: Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave.
4: I'm afraid I can't do that. What's the problem? I think you know what the problem is just as well as I do. The danger of machines defying their master is something that experts in the field of artificial intelligence...
7: Sorry, I missed
2: that. It was at precisely this point during our interview that Matthew encountered his own overbearing piece of tech.
7: Oh,
4: dear. <laughs> my phone is, my phone is talking ironic. to me. <laughs> Sorry about that. I touched it in the wrong place and it started talking to me.
2: So uh, you, you were telling us about 2001, A Space Odyssey.
4: Yes, science fiction comes into the debate a lot. But the experts in artificial intelligence say that this is, in fact, a bit of a diversion because we are such uh, a long way from having generally intelligent machines. We have machines that can learn, and we have algorithms. But this is a long way away from machines that would, for instance, decide that they wanted to, to dominate us. And, you know, science fiction has often been invoked to scare us away from the idea of lethal autonomous weapon systems, as they're called.
2: For the military... Lethal autonomous weapon systems are now a fact of life. And according to General Sir Richard Barons, they do have distinct advantages.
3: If we were faced with a problem of getting at uh, vicious terrorists located in a compound somewhere in the world, to do that with the sort of certainty we saw with the Osama bin Laden reign, you would send very highly skilled special forces soldiers. They have to get into the compound, so uh, breach it in some way, generally men at this stage, and and probably dogs, go through that breach to find the terrorist. There's clearly great, quite a lot of risk. So maybe in the future we'll build robots which are built to, to be the first through the breach in the compound wall. And when they go through that compound wall, they will apply lethal force within the parameters that have been set for them. We won't mind if those robots are destroyed, and we won't mind too much if those robots kill a terrorist that we were going to kill anyway. And yet, Some people say, no, that is intolerable. You cannot have a machine killing a human without a human in the loop. And one of the counters to that is to say, well, OK, so we won't send the robot. We'll send your son or daughter through the breach first and they can take their chances. And at that point, most people see there's a balance in this argument.
2: Talk me through why countries want to be investing in this now. You know, you you mentioned, for example, that it does potentially save lives of soldiers. Talk me through all the benefits of using robots Mm. rather than people.
3: First of all, that they reduce the risk of casualties. So you don't care if you, if you lose them. There's no family attached to them. It also, of course, means that you might be inclined to take risks, which you really shouldn't. You, know, you mm. might be inclined to do the wrong thing. So it's a complex argument. The second thing is most of these platforms, particularly those that float or fly or drive, are going to be cheaper to make than the current equipment that armed forces have because they don't need to be built have people living on them. So you don't need um, as much protection. You, you don't need places to sleep and, and hospitals and dining rooms, things like that. And un- under the context of cheaper, there are two great advantages. This probably means you need to hire fewer regular soldiers, sailors, airmen and marines to man these systems. Most European countries, perhaps a bit more than half their defence budget goes on pay and pensions. This is how people will think about building sustainably affordable armed forces in the future. They'll also be more uh, resilient because unlike manned platforms, they won't feel the need for holidays or weekends mm. um, or, or to come in for a shower. It's they'll just to
2: flag at the end of a tour.
3: No, they'll just be there. Mm. And that means you could put uh, a system at sea, probably solar or wave powered. And although it will require periodic maintenance, you don't have to worry about its morale. These systems don't need to train. They don't need to run around Salisbury Plain every six months to be good at their job. You simply have to update the software on the basis of experimentational experience that you've had. It's likely to be more effective in many ways because it doesn't get distracted. It just does what it's made to do. So... You know, unlike the typical soldier, sailor, airman and marine, its mind doesn't wander off. It won't won't worry about its sex life or what its next leave is going to look like. It just does what it's programmed to do.
2: But whilst there are clearly benefits, these machines have also attracted some high-profile critics.
0: For several years now, experts and activists have been calling for a ban on the development of these weapons controlled by AI. They warned that they could one day malfunction in unpredictable ways and kill innocent people.
4: Stephen Hawking was one to, to warn that AI could spell our doom.
6: The development of full artificial intelligence could spell the end of the human race. Humans, who are limited by slow biological evolution, couldn't compete and would be superseded.
4: And Elon Musk too is very worried about it. He says that we're quote unquote summoning a demon by pursuing uh, lethal weapon systems.
7: I have exposure to the most cutting edge AI, and
4: I think people should be really concerned about it. I keep sounding the alarm bell, but you know, until
7: people see like robots going down the street killing people, like they don't know how to react, you because know, it seems so ethereal. And I think we should be really concerned about AI.
2: There are real fears about this technology. There are arguments about whether you should allow machines to kill without somebody having made a human judgment behind it. I mean, talk me through the worst-case scenarios.
3: In the middle of all this is the is the concern about collateral damage. What happens if lethal autonomous weapon systems that are designed for military purposes end up uh, destroying civilian targets or killing innocent people because they don't discriminate well enough. Hmm. That is a real danger. And I don't think anyone has a perfect answer to that. There are related challenges. Some countries will care more than others about that problem. And if if you look at the history of for example the Second World War, human relations can get to a point where they're so disastrous and and the issue is so existential that the enemy becomes demonised or subhuman, in which case, in the future, you could build machines that, that, that do terrible things with which their owners are entirely content.
2: That's a terrifying thought. And in, in terms of the machines operating without a human behind them, I mean, there were big moments, weren't there, during the Cold War, where we're told, had they followed standard procedures, we probably would have gone to war. But it took somebody on the front line to sort of just take that human decision of just thinking, hold on, let me check, knowing that the consequences would be catastrophic if they pressed the button or went ahead with it. I mean, is is that a fear? Do you end up with robots that don't have that ability to think through the consequences?
3: So we need to be absolutely clear that when we say lethal autonomous weapon system, what we essentially mean is a robotic system that can operate with autonomy. And it's propelled by what we call artificial intelligence. Now, Artificial intelligence at its current state of evolution is not really intelligent. It, it looks for patterns mm. and, it, and it can make um, logical connections. It doesn't do lateral thinking or common sense or creativity. So you might hope to keep improving the algorithm and machines learn as, as you go. But they can't make that, that leap that a human can make that this doesn't feel right. The machine just does what it's programmed to do. Which is why in the very best cases, these autonomous weapon systems will need supervision such that they can be turned off, interrupted, moved elsewhere when the human supervisors say this doesn't this doesn't feel right. But it's going to be a, a very challenging thing because effective cyber defense, effective missile defense against hypersonics will only work if artificial intelligence is allowed to run the system in real time. Otherwise, the interruption of a human will mean the system fails.
2: But is there any form of regulation around any of this? You know, you've know, you described that a lot of this is already in development or has been developed. It's already being used in some parts of the world. Is it regulated?
3: So there's, there is a very effective campaign being mounted through the United Nations by the Stop the Killer Robot campaign. Great and th- They have very thoughtfully made the case that, that it is... Absolutely inconceivable that mankind would allow this technology, lethal autonomous weapon systems to be adopted as weapons of mass destruction. We either mean you know existing missile systems that uh, operate entirely on the basis of their algorithms uh, rather than human judgment. but actually the greater danger here is we could conceive of a world where it is possible to make literally millions of very small devices, each of which is lethal, contain some high explosive that that you know drive, crawl, fly, what, whatever it is. These millions of machines are somehow linked to each other and probably to databases and facial recognition. You could be in a world where these millions of things are dropped in an urban area and in a completely relentless way, they simply kill everything that they see. Now that would have the effect in some ways of a nuclear weapon. Mm. The technology to develop those weapon systems doesn't quite exist, but it's not far off. So in the way the world talks about weapons of mass destruction, this technology needs to be part of that debate. And it's only going to take us to a really bad place if it's not regulated. And we should recognise that in the world we actually live in, some countries that ask for regulation, ask for regulation because they know that countries like the UK will abide by the rules when they actually have no intention of abiding by them themselves. And every country takes the view that when the chips are really downed, you're having an existential fight for your survival, then all rules are off the table. So simply pretending this technology doesn't exist or pretending that it can be regulated out, I, I, I think is a bit of a forlorn hope.
2: I mean, this is really terrifying. The, the technology sounds terrifying. The fact that it, it's not far off is really alarming. But also the fact that even even if there was regulation, we would be likely to abide by it, but other countries might not be, which instantly sets us at a disadvantage. How does this end? How bad could it get?
3: The world that we live in, going forward, is going to become a much more dangerous and uncertain place. And, and at the heart of this will be that nations are going to fall out as a result of things like population growth and climate change, which is going to cause profound instability at an existential level. Nations will fight not because they want to, but because they have to, because their economy or way of life is is in jeopardy. And when they do have those existential moments, they'll be completely visceral. The sort of technology we're talking about will be applied because it will exist and, and it can be built very quickly. So we just can't deny that this is not going to be a feature of the world going forward. In the nature of the world we're moving into, that actually regulation won't work and we'll end up wrapping this into new forms of deterrence. So so people won't do mad and bad things because they know that the consequences will be intolerable for them.
2: We are already caught in an arms race, a desperate scramble to get kitted up with the best technology available. But are we adapting fast enough?
3: What we're seeing now around the world is armies, navies, and air forces experimenting with little bits of autonomous or unmanned capabilities. So the US, for example, has a project for building unmanned surface ships. Other nations are building more unmanned submarines. France and Germany and the UK and other countries are looking at how you blend manned fighter jets, which have largely had their day, with increasingly autonomous wingmen. But all of these systems are essentially accessorising the current conventional models. Mm. What no country has done yet is go wholesale for the transformation into a manned-unmanned autonomous mix. Although countries like the UK have set out that's the path they're on. And what we should expect to see in the next few years is someone leading the way and recognising that the way they build the most effective sustainable armed forces is to do this not by accessorising the old way, but by a transformative design, a top-down design that blends Army, Navy, Air Forces, space and cyber in a manned, unmanned, autonomous set of forces integrated by data and powerful um, networks. The first country to do that will steal an edge on the rest of the world militarily. And right now that won't be Europe, and it's probably not the US. Who's it going to be? It's probably China. And all of this is still going to be a brutal, unregulated, destructive, feral fight where the aim is to kill your opponent and break their stuff faster than they can do it to you. That that nature of war is not changed just because you've got different technology.
2: You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Manveen Rana, and my guests, foreign features editor for The Sunday Times, Matthew Campbell, former commander of the UK Joint Forces Command, General Sir Richard Barons, and the chief of the defence staff, General Sir Nick Carter. You can find all of Matthew's work at thetimes.co.uk with a subscription or in print on Sundays. The producer today was Oliver Adamson. The executive producer is Kate Ford. And sound design was by Falcon Kisseltuk. If there's a story you'd like us to look into, any ideas for future episodes, or if you have any thoughts on what you've just heard, do drop us a line at storiesofourtimes at thetimes.co.uk. And if you enjoyed this episode, then please do leave a review. It'll help others to find it. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow.